You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Both these guys have agreed to cooperate with us, and um, that was kind of interesting. I mean, um, the thing I noticed that in addition to, we had two stories, we had stories set very much in the Bay Area, very specifically in the Bay Area, and um, we had two writers uh, um, who are also very funny. I also... um, <laughs> That's quite all right. The the what the primary thing I noticed it made me think of a thing uh, Robert Louis Stevenson once said when he wrote an essay on um, Sir Walter Scott, where he said the primary thing was that he always had his hand very firmly on the tiller of the story. And that's what I think we get out of out of both of these authors. It's one important similarity that they have. From the very beginning, they have their hand firmly on the tiller of the story, and it uh, it's off. It's off and running. So there is a couple of questions I want to ask. Well, we all noticed, of course, that uh, there was a lot of Bay Area stuff, and a lot, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting. And I did want to ask uh, Peter: Do you uh, shoot also at the Davis Street Range? <laughs> Actually, you know, I haven't. The last time. The last time I shot at something was, as I recall, at a rat at the, which was just climbing over the edge of my bed in Pittsburgh when I was a freshman college student at the university. I had an, having seen the rats, I had bought an air pistol. And I had it under my pillow, and I couldn't wait for a rat to make a pass at my bed. <laughs> and I woke up in the morning, and there, there was one climbing over the, the foot, at the foot of the bed. And I just said, hold it, stay right there. Do not, I'll be back in a minute. And I, <laughs> I got the air pistol from under my pillow, aimed, fired, I hit it. The thing, the pellet bounced right off. <laughs> and my roommate, who was a senior, just convulsed with laughter. I told you about Pittsburgh rats. <laughs> and it was true. It was a Pittsburgh rat that was out of my league. And that's the last time I've shot anything at anything. I don't know. Um, th- it simply it looked at me. <laughs> it looked at me, you know, with a m- kind of mixture of deep contempt <laughs> and a certain amusement. And then I went off to find breakfast. And I do, before we, I also I think we had a question for Dick from the front row. Oh, I was just wondering um, if you wrote, or what, what um, rock and roll magazine you wrote for, or if you wrote for any. Uh, yeah, well, Rock, 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 the fictitious magazine in the story was based on Crawdaddy, which was my primary. Oh, Crawdaddy. I had written for them on the East Coast. And and had moved to Berkeley and was supposed to open, was supposed to establish a West Coast office and got as far as starting to scout rental properties and and hire a staff. At which point, uh, the mobsters who owned Crawdaddy 
were bought out by worse mobsters. <laughs> now, was that, wasn't Paul Williams running the magazine, though? That was earlier on, yeah. Oh. Yeah. It went through any number of, of editors. Um, and and the, the, the West Coast office never quite happened, but uh, it's fairly fairly accurately depicted in the story, except in the story it really did happen, and in reality it was killed off. Yes? Did you meet um, Elvira? I mean Vampire Elvira, wasn't it? Yes. Elvira was the proverbial. Yes. Vampirella? Yes. Um, no, this... The woman that I called Vampirella in the story was a real groupie that I saw many, many times at a variety of events, and she's described, I think, fairly accurately, um, but that was not her name. <laughs> well, anytime you you, you uh, deal with Dick, you get swept back on the tides of history, and I, I'm thinking of Vampirella. There was a uh, Warren Comics did yeah. a magazine called Vampirella. Jim Warren, Jim Warren, yeah, Jim Warren. Did you ever work for Warren? No, I knew Jim Warren, uh, but I offended him the first time we met because he had published uh, an article about the creation of Superman and stated in the article that when Superman was added to the contents of Action Comics, the circulation skyrocketed. And I said, Jim, Superman was in Action Comics from volume one, number one. And uh, he frowned and turned on his heel and walked away. Huh. <laughs> All right. All right. Yes? I want to know how you define mobster and worst mobster. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fair question. Um, mobsters paid me too little, and worst mobsters didn't pay me at all. There you go. Yes, please. Well, it, I didn't have a very specific timeline in mind when I wrote the story, but there are some uh, definite clues in it. Merle and Jerry playing together at the New Monk. I was at the New Monk and, and hung out with them a little bit. Like um, maybe a little earlier. I, Olive Green AMC oh, yeah. Gremlins. <laughs> <laughs> Once upon a time, Lupa. <laughs> Do we have a... Uh, any, I have a question. It has to do with Peter's story, but I'm asking everybody else because Peter doesn't know either. There's a word in literary critical theory for a story that chases its own tail, where the story becomes, where the writing of the story becomes a, an element in the story. Um, does anybody know the word? It's, yeah, it sort of means, ah, here we go. No, it's not recursive. That's... Uh, that's close. Is that it? Maybe that is it. <laughs> Recursive. Not a Rondo, musically. How about egocentric? Egocentric. Well, that might do. I don't know. I don't know. No, cannibalistic is closer to it. <laughs> cannibalistic. What? Warhead. 
Well, yeah, yeah. Borges, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, as I was saying, you know, as, as we all know, it's, a, um, it's a, a, not a common, but a, a, I would say a distinguished and a, a almost traditional literary form. But, you know, it gets used. It doesn't get used a lot. It can't get used too much. It's used probably just about as often as, what, what do you think? Well, people, it was a very popular sort of thing in the late 60s and early 70s. People like Donald Bartholomew. Right. Did right. Things like, I'd call it, I'd call it, I would have called it at that time a New Yorkerism, if yeah. anything, because it showed up in that magazine a lot. Right, but never anymore. No, it's pat, as, as a... Are you thinking about metafiction? Yeah, it's yeah. Maybe that's yeah. it. Metafictional. That's the word I was looking for. It's metafictional because it's <coughs> fiction, yeah. It's metafictional. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was an interesting um, experiment in that. It's a story calling attention to the fact that it is a story. In the last unicorn, I have Schmendrick saying after the appearance of King Lear, Prince Lear. Um, it's a great relief to admit I've been waiting for this tale to turn up a leading man. <laughs> well, they say this new, uh, anybody, there's this new uh, TV series called Sit Down and Shut Up about school teachers. And apparently there's a lot of stuff in there where people refer to the fact that they know they're on a TV show. You know, that, that anyway, I thought, I thought it was uh, an interesting story in that sense. Now, would you call uh, these stories uh, fantasy or Science fiction. Fantasy. Yeah. So. Well, no, but. Yeah. I would almost say, uh, certainly, yeah. The characters themselves know they're in a story, yeah. What is it? An anagnorosis, maybe? Sounds like aneurysis. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> maybe that's. Yeah, really. We get one call. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, maybe. Well, there's a way in which I was thinking that, that uh, Dick's story is, in a sense, a science fiction story uh, because it, it relies on a device. And there's no, uh, the device is the T-shirt. Uh, to me, it was a version of the little shop story where you, you, you buy this thing or you get it in the mail or something and it, and it has this, uh, you know, you... You don't know what it's doing, you know. And a little shop, the story depends on having a, a really opaque character. I mean, this guy, 
it, it, we figured out what was happening a long time before he did. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so you have to have a character. One of the one of the literary devices all writers use is a is a character that's a little dumber than they are. Right? It it frees you up. Right? Well, it makes the reader feel smart. <laughs> right. You know, in one of my very favorite books in the whole world, James Thurber's The Thirteen Clocks, the Golucks, the strange little creature who aids the prince, says proudly. I am the Golux, the only Golux in the world and not a mere device. And at the end, very nearly, when everything's going to hell for the Duke, who's the Duke of Coffin Castle, who's one of the great villains in literature, the Duke just turns on the Golux, who's defeated him, and snarls, you, you mere device, you platitude, you <laughs> Golux ex machina. Connor. Oh. No. The guy in the green. Thank you. I can actually pull a slight rug out from you. There are other reasons behind the existence of Peter's story that he has yet confessed to. Oh. They're always All right. Well, what are they? You. Deadline. <laughs> Deadlines well. will do it. It was for an anthology of, uh, on dragons. And it's amazing, you know, what? Well, I'm always quoting Samuel Johnson's line, depend upon it. When the man knows that he is to be hanged within a week, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. You see, what yeah. he's leaving out is he spent two months writing a story that was like three times too long for the anthology, and which we still haven't gotten into shape to send to anybody, and he had two days to write that. Oh, all right. Well, it doesn't show. It doesn't show. Couldn't afford it. Yeah. No, that's, an, that's another thing altogether. That's, no, that's what? There's a, a novel, a young adult novel, and I think young adult is mostly a matter of budget. But um, no, it's about a world in which, although there are there are still large, mean, dangerous dragons, dragons have mostly been reduced to vermin. They get in your walls, and then you have to call the dragon exterminator. And the the hero is a young dragon exterminator who hates his job. All right. Well, I would just argue that, you know, maybe in the interest of diversity, that if you have a dragon in the story, it's by definition of fantasy. It, it no you, can you can you make a dragon story anything but a fantasy? I'm not. I don't know if you can. Well, Anne McCaffrey's dragonfly books. Huh? The Anne McCaffrey dragonfly books are strong. Yeah, maybe it's on another planet. That helps. <laughs> Roberta um, McAvoy wrote a couple of books back, I think, in the 70s or 80s about a relationship between a middle-aged woman and a very nice old Chinese gentleman who from time to time turns into a dragon. Seas of the Black Dragon. Yes, that's it. What's the name of it? Seas of the Black Dragon. Seas of the... Tea with the Black Dragon. Oh, like T-shirts. No, like, mm -hmm. like, 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 <laughs> <laughs> All right, I got it, I got it. <clears throat> okay. But apart from the business of turning into a dragon, um, he's not a fantastic creature at all. It's just a thing he does. Right. All right. Well, it, it seemed to me that uh, just in terms of broad category, I, mm. I guess I see a dragon, I think fantasy, yeah, and I see a... Of course. Uh, it, it, even if a T-shirt 
I don't know, the T-shirt thing, it, there was a device. So I felt it was more well, a device than a magical. I, I have to, have to uh, take issue with that to a small extent. That story is neither fantasy nor science fiction. It's autobiographical in every detail. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, last week I wrote last week. I don't do drugs anymore. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All of a sudden, you get this rush of memory. <laughs> Sounds ominous to me. I don't think I'm going to try that. <laughs> All right, well, let's talk about, uh, let's talk a little bit about process. Peter, you banged this thing out in, in uh, two days? I don't remember that it was two days. If Connor says so, it might have been because my poor sense of time and a strong sense of desperation. <laughs> and I can't, it was a short time, and this has happened before when I've gone off in the wrong direction and then needed, you know, to write something in a tearing hurry if I was going to make the deadline. I think of the quote of Stevenson's that you used, and Stevenson's one of my very favorite writers, he talks about having his hand on the tiller of the story at all times. My thinking, he hearing you, my immediate reaction was with me, it's mostly, where is the tiller? Right. <laughs> yeah, I know that field. I know that field. So, so how do you, are you still writing a lot of short stories these days, or what are you mainly doing? Um, I'm putting together some collections, but I've also <coughs> finally started work on a novel which I have owed St. Martin's Press since 1996. <laughs> I, I, I missed my deadline. Uh. <laughs> no, seriously, what happened was I had an elaborate backstory for this novel. It's a murder mystery, or it's supposed to be a murder mystery. I had this huge apparatus of what has gone before. But I didn't have the actual story. I didn't know who was killed or by whom or why. And I was absolutely at, at a uh, standstill for all those years. Um, and recently, I decided, well, I, I'm just, with, with the advice of, of, of a couple of friends, including uh, my good friend Michael Curlin, to take that huge backstory, and instead of using it as a backstory, uh -huh. make that a separate novel, which, Maybe I will do someday, but in the meanwhile, the murder mystery, I just have a whole other murder mystery with different characters, different, mm, different motivations, different victims, and, and, but that came about in a very peculiar way. Uh, just a few weeks ago, it was, it was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> I remember it well. <laughs> uh, and, and I always lock my car when I leave it in the driveway. But I had been carrying groceries in, and it was really terrible out. And I brought in the last bag of groceries, and I forgot to go back and lock the car. And the next morning, I went out, and someone had broken into the car, except they didn't have to break in. It was unlocked. They just had to get in. Uh, papers were scattered all over. The glove compartment, compartment had been rifled. And uh, my little change pocket had been burgled, uh, a dollar, five quarters were taken. Uh, but that was all that was taken. Um, they didn't take the radio, they didn't take some CDs that were in the car, and they didn't even take my cell phone, left it lying on the seat. I mentioned this to a couple of friends who, who told me, well, you've been dissed. 
and, then, and then I thought, well, you know, maybe I should call the police and tell them I was robbed, and they'll say, of what? And I will say, of a dollar and a quarter. Do you have receipts for that dollar and a quarter? <laughs> so I decided not to do that. But then I thought, this is such a peculiar crime, if you can even apply the word crime to it, an incident, a very peculiar and in a strange way inappropriate incident gave me the springboard for this novel that has been stalled since 1996. And I just started writing it. I look forward to finishing it sometime around. That the was the June. incident. That was the incident, yeah. Well, I'm not going to show it to you until it's all done. So it's worth a buck and a quarter. <laughs> At least. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. So uh, actually, uh, Dick is, is kind of unique in that he's showed up in best of the year anthologies, um, not only in science fiction, but also in mystery and also in horror and always for short fiction, right? And there's well, not many, yes. I don't have any other colleagues, I think, that can say that. Jack of all trades. <laughs> so what do, you, what do you like to write best? I, I could, you know, give a real smarmy answer like good stories. But <laughs> in, in fact, I, I have to tell you, as the incident about the dollar and a quarter that was stolen, and they left behind a cell phone and, a, and an FMAM radio and a bunch of CDs. I, you know, I've been complimented many times over the years for my wonderful imagination. And I have always told people when such an incident occurs, thank you very much for the kind words, but in fact, they're inappropriate. I have no imagination whatsoever. I do not create anything. I find stories as I found, found a novel in, in this ridiculous petty robbery of which I was the victim. Uh, so, I, you know, whenever I find a story that looks good, that interests me, that I want to live through, which is what a writer does when he writes a story, I then write it in whatever way and in whatever context, in whatever genre, seems most appropriate to that story. Right. That makes sense. Um, in this case, it turns out to be um, a detective story. In, 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 in the case of the Lone Star Beer T-shirt, um, I think of it as a mainstream story. It will probably be published as, as fantasy, but in fact, it's it's absolutely, it's hardly even fiction at all. It's really autobiography. Inclu including the you will be rewarded? Well, <laughs> no. I, I, I couldn't help asking that. But, no, but, but the part about. that's what I do. The part about, about helping, it, it wasn't a little old lady, it was, it was a crippled man across Van Ness, yeah. it really happened. And when I got back, I was with two friends whose yeah. name I call Laura and Gordon. Right. That's not their real name. And, and that whole conversation about what a dangerous thing you did and why did you do that? And, 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 and the response that Del Marston gives in the story is the response that I gave them. I said, oh, 
I, I never even thought about that. You see somebody needs help, you help them. That's all. It's not complicated. How about you, Peter? Where do you, do you have to, uh, where do you get stories? I do love Harlan Ellison's old answer to that, Schenectady. <laughs> There's this place in Schenectady where you sign up with them and they, you know, it's like fruit of the month. They send you story ideas once a month. But the fact is that, the fact is that sometimes, as with Dick, stories plop into my lap. I hardly have to do any digging for them at all. Other times, oh, um, the, it's a combination of things. Um, Tamsin goes back to, first, a con the fulcrum of the story goes back to a dinner table conversation I had with my father, who was a history teacher in high school. He was talking about a particular event in 17th century England, a minor rebellion that got a lot of people killed. And it stayed in my head and provided me with the only one of my own villains I've ever hated. But also, there was a Disney producer who had called me to ask about the possibility of my creating a movie, coming up with a movie idea for them for an animated film. Other people think about Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast. I didn't. I thought about a story which eventually became Tamsin, and if you saw the original outline, the original proposal, you'd recognize it in the sense that it was like, you know, Tamsin written for a classic Disney movie, you know, complete with villain, villains bumbling sidekicks and so on. I never heard back. <laughs> and, and eventually I came around to looking at it as, well, one of the great standard phrases of my neighborhood was always, it shouldn't be a total loss. Maybe there's a novel in here. <laughs> maybe, I can do th maybe I can do that. Right. But mostly, it's a combination of things for me. The accident and the, the thing that was meant to be something else. Now, you studied with Stegner at Stanford. Is no, that correct? No, I was in the Wallace Stegner I had a Wallace Stegner writing fellowship. But was this after your first novel or before? Yes, after, after the first I novel. So. Okay. And, you know, as I've written elsewhere, I sailed into that, that class feeling, well, reasonably cocky is the polite way of putting it. <laughs> but in fact, that class contained Ken Kesey writing One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Chris Cox writing The Year of Living Dangerously, Larry McMurtry writing his second novel. <laughs> I got one good story out of that year, which has followed me around since, but for the rest of it, you know, it was just, it was just listening to other people reading their work in class, even people you haven't heard of, and thinking, oh shit, <laughs> like that. Yeah, who were the instructors? The ins there were two. The instructor was, the first instructor was a wonderful critic and poet named Malcolm Cowley, who in many ways was a walking history of American literature Absolutely. up to 1960. And on top of that was a lovely, completely undogmatic man. If you 
he made a suggestion and you didn't take it, but worked out the story your own way, that was fine with Malcolm, just so the story worked. And if his suggestion helped, also good. But his ego wasn't bound up with whether or not you took his advice. And I loved him. He was a lovely man. He was followed by a truly great Irish short story writer named Frank O'Connor, oh, nice. who was a splendid writer and a charmer, and as, as dogmatic as Malcolm wasn't. It was completely the other end of the spectrum. He knew how stories should be written, and that was that. <laughs> he hated a certain number of genres, fantasy among them, and the first day that he ran the class, and this is a real shock to all of us coming after, after Malcolm, he went down a list of writers, both writers and types of writing that he couldn't stand, we might as well know it. And the example I always think of is Chris Koch, who was a fine writer and who worshiped D.H. Lawrence. It was sort of, okay, Shakespeare first, D.H. Lawrence second, but really close, then God somewhere around in there. <laughs> and um, that first day, O'Connor absolutely jumped all over D.H. Lawrence as a totally worthless writer. And Chris gradually stopped coming to class. And I was cool until um, he got to the writer I was in love with at the time, Isaac Dennison. And O'Connor had made a distinction one that I've never fathomed to this day, between writers and storytellers. And I asked him, well, where would Isaac Dennison fit in that category? And O'Connor said, well, he couldn't honestly say because her stories bored him so much that he'd never finished one. I didn't stop coming to class, but it was a near, th a near thing there, too. <laughs> and, and yet he was you know, a fine writer who'd lived through as much history as Malcolm. He, Brendan Bayon, had come to San Francisco because they were doing one or another of his best-known plays, The Quare Fellow or The Hostage. And O'Connor lived in horror that Bayon might find him. That Bayon, who was by then a professional Irish drunk, just roaring up out of the audience during most performances <laughs> of his play to wander on stage, banter with the actors, and fall over. And O'Connor had the horrors that Bayon would show up on his lawn, in the middle of the night, singing Irish revolutionary songs. <laughs> which could have happened. <laughs> but here was O'Connor, who had done time in prison, you know, when he was still a teenager, for you know, his part in the Irish Revolution. Um, it was a very strange history, and you know, I was by far too ignorant to know what was probably going on. But I don't know what Stegner would have been like running the class, but yeah. I always remember Malcolm. Well, Malcolm, Malcolm Kelly wrote that great history of the lost generation, Hemingway and Fitcher. Exiles Return. Exiles Return, which is one of the great literary histories in American life. Did you, did you have any mentors that been, I know you never went to Stanford. <laughs> no, I did not. <laughs> did you have any um, mentors that uh, either prodded you or brought you out? Well, <coughs> I came up through a very different route. Uh, Peter's background is obviously very literary in a good way. Um, I, I, I came up through journalism. I was originally a sports writer 
and wound up doing uh, radio news uh, while still a teenager. And in New York? Uh, no, in, in in Florida. Well, no, I was I was doing the sports writing in New Jersey, right. and then I worked for a radio station, WIOD, owned by the wonderful Isle of Dreams Broadcasting Company, <laughs> in Miami, Florida, which I believe has now turned into one of those horrifying uh, uh, hate talk stations. Uh, but when I worked there, it was an NBC network um, news station, and quite good. Uh, I found the discipline wonderfully, wonderfully uh, instructive. Uh, I used to go in uh, after my last, this was a, an internship my senior year in college, and I would go in there after my last class in the afternoon. And it was my job to write the, um, I think it ran at six o'clock, the local news. And when, the, when we went on the air at six o'clock, we went on the air at six o'clock, there was no wobble room, no wiggle room at all. Uh, you go on the air at six o'clock, you're ready at six o'clock. And the news director, who was a wonderful, strange man named Gene Struhl, he had the strangest eyes I have ever seen. Have you ever noticed the gecko that the two eyes work independently? Mm -hmm. Well, Gene's eyes worked that way. He's the only human being I've ever seen who had gecko eyes. And um, he, he, he used to read the news himself most evenings. It was the declining days of classic radio, and we had staff announcers who would run through in rotation to, to read the news each afternoon. We were running uh, a story, a continuing story, about a, um, a murder trial. It was truly a horrifying case involving a child abduction and murder and so forth. Uh, a, a defendant had, or, or a suspect had been arrested um, he was himself, to use a, uh, a modern term that was not used in those days, developmentally delayed or whatever, uh, but he was able to live an independent life. In fact, he was a newspaper delivery boy, although he was actually a middle-aged man. He used to ride around on his bicycle and, and do his newspaper route. Part of my job in those days was to touch base just at the last possible moment with various news sources. And we had already gone on the air, and for some reason, the, you know, the, the god of newsmen whispered in my ear, call the courtroom where that case is going on because no news came out of there today. I called the number, and usually I spoke to the clerk of court, and we had got to know each other telephonically at least, and this was a different answer. And I identified myself at W, you know, Richard Lupoff, WIOD News, uh, who am I speaking to, please? And it was the judge who had just come off the bench and was in his chambers. Well, you know, here I was, like 19 or 20 years old and a real kid, kid, and here is the judge in a murder trial, and he picked up the phone when I was just trying to call the clerk of the court, and I managed to stammer out my question, is there anything new in the case today? And the judge says, Oh, yes, I've been studying the prosecution case. They don't have anything on this guy. I scolded them, dropped all, told, ordered them to drop the charges, and sent the defendant home. <laughs> and I said, thank you very much. By now it's like <laughs> 6.01 p.m. Gene Struhl is already in the other studio reading the news, you know, about uh, the library uh, budget commission just working on, on next year's book purchase orders. 
And I sat down, and, and my typewriter, that was all we had in those days, and typed up the news story on the judge dismissing this case. Went to the other room, to the studio, opened the big, heavy, padded door, closed it, walked in, and handed this piece of paper to Gene. This was the famous, I've just been handed a bulletin incident. <laughs> I handed him the bulletin. This just in. Tear on the front page. And this was the most amazing thing. The man with the gecko eyes, with one eye, he continues to read about the library board <laughs> deliberations. With the other eye, he's reading the story I just gave him about this murder trial. He gets to the end of the, of the library board story, and he goes straight into the murder story. And we wow. had scored a beat. No other radio station in town had it. No TV station had it. The, um, the last edition of what was in the Miami Daily News had already gone to bed. The Bulldog, that is the first edition of the following morning's Miami Herald, wouldn't be out until at least 8 p.m. And the only way they're going to get this story is if they happen to be listening to WIOD and heard it. <laughs> so we got a 24-hour beat, or at least a 12-hour beat, on every other news medium in town. And this was, you know, for, a, for anybody, this was a great experience. For a kid such as I was, this was the thrill of a lifetime. Wow. And that kind of work, uh, whether you're, you know, there's no, you, you know, anybody know the music of a fellow named David Frischberg? Oh, yeah. Of okay. Yeah. You know his song, The Sports Page? Yes. Okay. He talked, this is a wonderful song by a brilliant writer about news and how news gets warped and twisted and distorted and manipulated. But if you want a real, if you want the real truth, go to the sports page, right? If the Dodgers beat the Giants six to two, there is no way to spin that. The <laughs> Dodgers beat the Giants six to two, period. That's, that's writing sports. And he ends it by saying that these days the sports page is the only one to turn to if you really want to know the score. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Anyway, a uh, long way around. The way I got into writing fiction was, um, was via journalism, which, you know, there are, there are some fine precedents for this fellow named Hemingway started out as a journalist, and uh, Stephen Crane, I believe, started out as a journalist. Mark Twain. That's right, yeah. a, a lot of, a lot of uh, very, very good fiction writers came in, not, not through the literary route, but through the journalistic route. I'm not saying one is superior to the other, I'm just saying it's different roads to, uh, to, the, same, to the same destination. I did magazine journalism. What for magazine? What? For what magazines? For primarily the Curtis magazines, Holiday, the Saturday Evening Post, and so on, when I was learning how to be a professional writer. I had an instant family, children to feed, and fortunately editors who were kind enough to give me assignments and then teach me how to do them. Well, you were a bit of a star at that point. You had a little glitter on your name from the... I was a kid. Yeah, but I mean, in terms of, that's why they called you, yeah. right? Well, you know, it's a, if you trace it back, it's a, finally a network of acquaintances who made suggestions, but I know that, um, when I was in the late 60s covering um, Martin Luther King's last project, the Poor People's Campaign in Washington, D.C. for the Saturday Evening Post, I 
came around the corner at some point and ran smack into one of my former editors, a wonderful man named John D. Weaver, who had been there in the same place, the mall, with the same shacks, the same desperation, in 1932 or thereabouts for the bonus march, the bonus marches, the veterans of World War I who came to D.C. and camped out, you know, hoping to get, to some make uh, their plight known, hoping to get a bonus or some money, some recompense for the, the time and their suffering in World War I. And Douglas MacArthur, sainted memory, eventually <laughs> ran them out, <laughs> literally, physically. And John had come back to see if anything much had changed in the last 36 years. But I remember saying to him, John, for God's sake, I'm so glad to see you. You know, I really don't know how to handle this story. And he just looked at me <laughs> and laughed and said, you're a big boy now. <laughs> and of course, I was, and I did it myself, but my instinct was to throw myself into his arms and ask, what do I do now? <laughs> because he'd always helped me like that years before when I was starting out. Do you ever do uh, journalism like that now? No, not for a very long time. And it wasn't comparable to, well, I still think it was real journalism for n newspapers, dying or not, where you have to have it called in by a certain time and it has to be, it has to be right. And, and that's the end of it. It's like you're a radio station. Well, it seemed, as I recall, it seems like you, you, know, you had a certain acclaim from uh, uh, Fine and Private Place and a sort of, you were known as a, as a novelist, as a fiction writer, and this, it, it, now correct me if I'm wrong, but it was a time when they were, hired, uh, like Mailer was doing nonfiction, and they had Hunter yeah. Thompson, yes. and, they had, and so they were, they were getting people who, ordinarily were fiction writers and turn them loose on stories and seeing what they would come up with, right? That was kind of another level. Um, you know, I never knew, except as a boy, any of those people. And it was different level of, of subject, certainly of finance, you know, pay. Um, I was just literally putting bread <coughs> on the table. But yes, that was a time when what Tom Wolfe later called the new journalism right. was the coming new, in. Right, exactly. But this was, this was earlier. This was in the early 60s. Oh, okay. And I was learning, for instance, well, the p basically, Holiday Magazine said you can write about pretty much anything, but it has to be 3,000 words. <laughs> and you learn exactly how much space, if you're using the old, that old Hermes portable typewriter, you learn exactly how many pages 3,000 words takes up. And again, um, I learned do not ever try to back up your interview with a tape recording because this is you and you will screw it up. The one interview I ever did with a tape recorder, I screwed up so badly in terms of the recording that it was useless. Uh -huh. And I learned never to try that again. But I also learned a peculiar thing, which is that Truman Capote, at the time of writing in cold blood said or boasted that he could recall 95% of all conversations, the interviews with the subject. Now it may have been just Capote speak, may have been true, but what I learned was that if I could call back the subject, the interviewee's vocal rhythm, speech pattern, I had a shot at getting the words right. 
Hmm. And I paid more attention to that, I think, than anything else. Accent, vocal rhythm, like fingerprints. And that came in useful, certainly both in writing, both in writing this stuff and then fiction later on. That's interesting. Somebody asked an intelligent question. <laughs> well, up there. There's Something, li something like that. Mark Twain writes in the beginning of Huckleberry Finn that he employs X amount of local dialects, you know, X amount of regional dialects, and adds, when he's got that set out, I just mentioned this because otherwise the readers of this book might think that all my characters were trying to talk alike and not succeeding. Right. Yeah, I remember that. And I can remember with one particular book, which was told by a lot of different voices, badgering my wife, who had been reading it, saying, if, if the character's name wasn't on this page, wasn't at the beginning of the chapter, would you know who was speaking? That became very important to me, and it still is. I still try to hear a character's voice in my head, not necessarily sticking anything like a French accent or something, you know, outstanding or grotesque on that, but just, just the individual way in which people put words together, even if they have the same words. Well, I can tell a story on Peter. Uh, long before I ever met him, about 20 years ago, I was working for a public pocketbooks in New York, and I was writing their publicity newsletter, you know, and uh, I called Peter long distance on the phone Lord to interview you. him. And I don't know if you remember this, but we had yeah, like an hour or so interview, and we get to the end of it, and Peter says, are you from Kentucky? And I said, yeah. And he says, I thought so. He says, I went to Stanford with Gurney Norman and Ed McClanahan, and I thought I recognized your accent. <laughs> yeah, I can't pick up accents like that, or Professor Higgins, but if there's one thing I know, it's Kentucky. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, can I can actually tell a tale that will illuminate this voice imprint thing. Peter likes to write stories in first person sometimes. And there's one he did a couple years ago. We sent it off to the editor, and the editor sent it back and said, I love this story, but the problem is this character doesn't write as well as Peter does. <laughs> and we actually, the character yeah. was very well presented, but, but kept kind of not quite getting the story across the way you'd like it as a reader. It was perfectly believable, just like someone would tell you, but not quite alive as a result, so we had to cheat. <laughs> yeah, put it back into, um, did I leave that in the first person? I can't remember. No, no, well, you left that one in first person. Yeah. But yeah. You had to, like, juice it up a little bit. You had to edit your character. <laughs> All right, there you go. But it's a curious thing because accents do fascinate me and ways of speaking, which are not necessarily a, a choice of look Like this, um, I can remember playing, playing catch with a guy from Texas. We were just throwing the ball back and forth, both young. I think we were both acting in the same play. And something I'd thrown got away from him and caught him in the throat. He wasn't badly hurt, but when he got his breath back, he said, wow, that one hit me right in the guzzle. <laughs> and <coughs> that's, I've never heard anybody except people from Texas 
you know, yeah. then there was used that word for throat, for Adam's apple. Yeah, well, people throw stuff at Texans quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I have a question. It comes up on occasionally. Um, Shout it out. Okay, question on, it comes up occasionally about names. You know, how do you come up with names? Is there something uh, more important there than, than there than I probably put into it, you know, because I, a couple of things I've written, somebody says, well, where'd you get the name? You know, I don't like the name, you know, get I don't read anymore because of that name. Uh, does that come up, you know, it, it, obviously when you're writing, you know, how do you come up with your name? Scarlett O'Hara's original first name was Pansy. <laughs> I rest my case. Yes, <laughs> yes, they matter. Tolkien was a great namer. I've never thought that J.K. Rowling was all that good a namer. That's a matter of you know, personal taste. But yes, they do matter. I can't tell you exactly why. Today, I changed a character's name. And he's, mind you, he's dead. Um, but I changed the character's name from Doug to Alan, A-L-A-N. And I can't say exactly why, except Alan is this dead guy and Doug isn't. No, it's, I agree. It's, do, do you agree with that? Or not? Uh, is, is, is this a very interesting question which I have never thought about before but just to revert to the story I read tonight that was very easy because because <coughs> there wasn't a goddamn word of it made up right no there wasn't Del Marston is a pseudonym that I used once to write a book right I remember it and um, uh, James Otho Kerr and Frank Arthur Kerr Joker and Faker were a pair of twins that I invented uh, way, way back when I was a schoolboy as part of a uh, science fiction fan's hoax. So um, they had a certain legitimacy. <laughs> they're, they're the patina of age. <laughs> yes. Uh, as for Vampirella, a lot of people were, were conversing during the break about wasn't, wasn't a TV host? No, that was Elvira. No, that was, was a Vampira. No, yeah. Vampirella was a comic book character yeah. and so forth. Um, but, you know, this woman who, who, who was real um, always wore black satin backstage. She was a groupie. She was always hanging around back there at, at uh, Winterland and uh, other, other local venues and always wore dark shades. And it was sometimes pretty dark in those <laughs> rooms. I wondered what that was all about, but I never got to know her that well. Mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, I just called her Vampirella because of the the black satin and the and the red costume jewelry. Uh, she she did project this sort of vampire look. We got that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, thanks, guys. We have um, Connor is still going to tell us the story. He's the Irishman in green there. It's an announcement. All right, stand up and okay. don't make it to us. <laughs> right. Um, on Monday, April 20th, it's Hitler's birthday. <laughs> it's also Peter's birthday. He's 70 years old. <laughs> and he has set himself a challenge. It's, it's 70 years on the planet and 50 years since he sold his first book, A Fine Tribe's Place, The Viking. And, and so we're doing a little thing where we're asking people if they want to join on his creative journey, it's going to be a subscription where you, you pay 25 bucks and 
every Monday for a year, he's going to email a new song lyric or poem out to you. If you want to join him on that, they'll all be brand new every week. He's got uh, the first three already set and ready and about 25 of the others lined up to write. And we're going to have 10 slots where we take suggestions from subscribers and he'll work those up. And it's going to be a blast just to kind of watch him do this for a whole year. It'll be great to see him sweat. And uh, Why is for him. People will oh, yeah. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> All right. I also do music, but I can't write it except in the most primitive, sneaky fashion. Really? I think uh, I can write it so that I can read it, but, and I can read music paradoxically. That's the one benefit of childhood piano lessons. But if I were to go back to college, and maybe a fund could be taken up for that purpose, <laughs> I, would go, I would go back as a music student to learn to write the stuff properly. What's a take? You spell cassette, boys and girls. <laughs> okay. I apologize. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I can't remember how to play some of them. This was 1986. Yeah. Yeah. Peter's actually a, uh, uh, quite a good musician. He has a beautiful little Gibson J45. Yes. Connor, what? she wants to know if the subscription information to this can be found on the website. Uh, we're about to make a big email blast out uh, sometime in the next 24 hours. And the website and it's, uh, it's www.peterbeagle.com or tomlandpress.com, and if you're on his email list for the Raven, it'll go out within the next 36 hours. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But it's, we're hoping, he'll have, uh, you should do a little bit of physics teacher gunch. Oh, this is, act this is, don't have the music for that yet, but it was actually a, started out as a poem I wrote in high school, junior high or high school, you know, Oh, weep for physics teacher Gunch, we'll never see him more. He proved that gravity exists by falling through the floor. <laughs> it goes on, it goes on from there. <laughs> Irina. I always wondered that myself. Oh. Well, when I was I, maybe in my early teens, the Vietnam War was going on, and they kept talking about bombing hamlets. And I thought, <laughs> what in the world is a hamlet? It must be something like a ham omelet, right? Uh, and of course, to make a ham omelet, you need eggs, which are ova. Dick, these are not the kind of things we admit. <laughs> <laughs> but now you know. 
Now you know. <laughs> there are things that writers only admit to each other very late at night right. and you know, after they've gotten to the hard liquor. Mm. <laughs> right. Yeah, sure. Listen, sure guys. We'll do it too. Thanks for coming. Thanks for your patience. Thanks for your intelligence. Uh, and especially thank Peter Beagle, Dick Lupoff, some really great readers tonight. Next uh, uh, month in May on the 16th, we have Heather Shaw and Richard Kadri. Richard, uh, and so that should be fun. Okay. Oh yeah, these guys will have a lot of books to send, so put them to work. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.